Hey, Pete. Yeah? I hate this fucking intro. <laughs> Get ready to start track. What? <laughs> what? No, we're we'll leaving. We'll do it live. Leave it in. <laughs> uh, um, this is this is the fifth episode of Star Trek, and we still haven't figured out our very easy to remember opening line. No, I think we got it. I just think I don't like it. But at this point, I think we have got such it. a big, solid fan base uh, that you can't change it. Episode four, five pro or five overall, four proper. Yeah, you're right. That's what people really like about the show is that uh, we have an awkward beginning. Then. Yeah. <laughs> you got to dig your heels in and just commit, Peter. Much got it. like Captain Kirk did. I don't know got how, it. but sure. Yeah, this is Star Trek. This is a podcast, a spinoff of uh, We Love to Watch. I'm Aaron Armstrong. Pete Moran is my co-host on that show and on this one as well. Uh, this podcast started because I have been a lifelong fan of Star Trek, seeing uh, the movies and the television show since I was a young age. It really was the first thing that I was truly kind of obsessed with as an adult that uh, had more than just like a movie. I was uh, certainly obsessed with Jurassic Park, Hook, Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. But like really reading books and uh, just just everything Star Trek all the time. It really was my first big pop culture obsession. And I found out that Pete had essentially never seen uh, any of the movies Uh and definitely was not familiar with the show. And if you listen to our first episode where we kind of really go into detail about our history with Star Trek, you'll find that I was actually surprised how little of just what I thought was general pop culture knowledge related to Star Trek had rubbed off on Pete. So that's where we're at. This is our uh, fifth episode overall, our fourth movie, and we are doing uh, my favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, or alternately called The One with the Whales. So uh, we are going to- You'll have a whale of a time. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lad. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, there's a good 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie reference for eight of you, probably. Uh, but, but yes, uh, and what we've been doing as well is uh, pairing up the movies with episodes. So uh, the for Star Trek The Motion Picture, we introduced Pete to just three general best, well-rounded episodes of Star Trek, the original series. And then since then, I've been pairing them with thematically important ones or just plot points that he would need to know to really pick up some of the threads of the movie. And this week we picked Tomorrow's Yesterday because it features the uh, time travel device they use in Star Trek The Voyage Home. But we're going to get into all that in a little bit. First, we're very excited to have uh, one of our uh, favorite guests from We Love to Watch, uh, and uh, who we've been uh, referring to as a producer who does not get paid by us uh, because she has been instrumental in some recent theme months that we've put together, including one we're uh, excited to announce later this year uh, for We Love to Watch. So, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you introduce yourself a little to to our audience? Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Carrie. Um, I am on We Love to Watch sometimes, and I work in documentary production and i live in new york 
And um, oh, I saw Happy Death Day to you over the weekend. That was really fun. <laughs> Those are all my facts today. Good facts. Good facts. Great facts. Yeah. But just but the you- facts, ma'am. Jesus Christ! Um, But uh, but Carrie, so you know you know our history. You listened to our pilot episode, yes. So and actually, uh, I don't know yours at all. Uh, You volunteered to be on this episode, and of course, we we jumped at the chance to have you on. But I have no idea how how much of a fan you are. Um, I think our last three episodes. We had uh, Andrew and uh, Bruce, who are lifelong fans. Uh, Anthony, last month, who was a was a more recent uh, fan, especially of the original series. I'm excited to hear kind of your your general knowledge, your fandom, uh, or if if this is still relatively new for you. It's I, it's a weird relationship. So I grew up watching Next Generation, which I think is how a lot of people around our age started watching it. Um, I watched it a lot um, with my family growing up and it was just, I was never that into sci-fi compared to a lot of people I know, but that was kind of the one property I was able to hook into. Um, I found it, I've never been a Star Wars person. I don't even really know why Star Wars and Star Trek are always brought up in the same comparisons but i feel like they are um and they, i think they start with star. To make everything into sports yeah i, I mean, we make politics into sports we make movies into sports everything needs to be a competitor right so so just to feed into that more in the very unproductive sense i i didn't grow up with star wars and i found it kind of inaccessible to get into as i got older um whereas star trek i always found to be more accessible i, I did start watching it younger but even when i've tuned into other shows in the property it's been easier for me to kind of latch on um so i didn't watch a lot of the original show growing up i've seen selected episodes over the years and i have a basic familiarity with it i've seen two of the of their three jj abrams movies i've seen two Uh, of them uh three in that series three that have been out yeah yeah so i've seen two directed by him oh okay I've seen I've seen the first two of those. Okay. Um, and I had seen Voyage Home for the first time. I think about a year ago. I had a friend. Okay. I had a friend who was in town who was like one of the biggest Star Trek fans I know, and she it came up in conversation that she had never seen one of my favorite movies, Dirty Dancing, and that I had never seen one of her favorite movies, Voyage Home, and we decided that we were going to watch the two kind of back to back, which was like a very odd double feature, but it was fun <laughs> and lovely. Um, I think and I from like, like almost the same year though. So it's true. I, yeah, I think there. <laughs> a year apart that was the theme um so it was and it, i always kind of like sharing art with people that i care about and seeing art that matters to them and so i got i got into this one in part because of that and also when she was telling me about the movie and i was saying like look you know i do like star trek a lot but i don't have a lot of familiarity with the original series is this one going to be hard for me to watch and she was basically like no you know there's some bi- there's some backstory at the beginning that you can kind of glaze over and the rest of it is like fun stuff with whales in san francisco I'm like great and that's basically what it is so, yeah, so I, you- I enjoy this one a lot <laughs> excellent now have you seen any of the other original series movies no i haven't so that's that's so interesting because so this was actually the first original series movie I saw as well. Uh, it was on TV and you're just like probably you. I didn't really understand what was going on in the beginning. 
where they're kind of having the trial and that kind of component. And then pretty soon it doesn't matter because they're back in time and they're having fun. Yeah. Uh, but it is also funny that this movie, as I came to find out later, uh, really completed a almost um, internal uh, trilogy of the Star Trek movies, even though they're six. Uh, two, three, and four have a very uh, beginning to end continuity where – uh, they they literally pick off where the last one left uh, where the last one left off, and so this really closes a lot of arcs that were started in Star Trek Two and continued in Star Trek Three before they get into um, uh, an, like a, just an individualized adventure in Star Trek Five, and then Star Trek Six uh, isn't a direct continuation but picks up a lot of themes and even a little bit of plot points uh, from from these so. It is interesting, though. I, th- you're, you're. This is the most accessible, I think, and uh, the easiest one, I think, to show new people. And I want to talk. I'm, I'm excited to talk a little bit why that is, and even some stuff I didn't even realize till this time was like missing. Like everyone knows the Enterprise is essentially not featured. I shouldn't say everyone. People know that the Enterprise isn't really featured in this movie. But how much of the Star Trek things that we think of don't show up in this movie? I, there was a list and uh, by quote by the director. Or sorry, the screenwriter Nicholas Meyer, who directed the second one, um, and so I, I'm gonna I'm excited to get into that. Uh, and then also, you mentioned uh, the Next Generation being your starting point. It is interesting to note that the reason the Next Generation exists with the cast that it does is because of this movie. Really? So uh, Shatner didn't want to come back because they weren't uh, because he was supposed to direct. That was how the contract worked. Uh, but then he wasn't able to anyways because he was starring in T.J. Hooker. And so uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted to make another one. And they spent eight months doing a prequel idea of them in Starfleet because Shatner didn't want to return. And then he finally negotiated with Paramount a raise, as did Nimoy. Um, so they each got paid. So the budget was $20 million, and they both got paid $2.5 million each. Damn. So that is 25% of the bu- the entire budget for those two. Where that money came from is they had to cut the budget of The Next Generation, which was in production at the time, or in pre-production at the time, down. It would premiere the year after this. And as such, they couldn't hire known cast members as they planned and had to hire all unknowns. So the reason that we have Patrick Stewart and Brett Spiner and all The Next Generation cast was because they were cheap. And they had to be cheap because they uh, because Leonard Nimoy and Shatner needed pay raises to appear in this movie. That's a really good fact. I know how Shatner's run as the character ends, <laughs> and it's like they got the new the new guys in, and they were like, "All right, I guess the B team can take over." And then everyone loved the B team, and then they're like, "Let's murder the old A team." Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I'm excited to talk about that because after Star Trek Generations. Shatner kept trying to come back into next generation movies. Uh, we'll talk about in, that in a very oh, Shatnerian wow. fashion. So we'll we'll He's get not to... a man of high dignity. Let's no, say no. He pouted his way to a new to, to writing novelizations about uh, Kirk's continuing adventures uh, after Star Trek Generations. But anyway, I forgot. I forgot also to mention. But you mentioned Leonard Nimoy. The other reason why I've always been a Star Trek fan is because it is the most Jewish of all of the. Uh, sci-fi franchises because of obviously you know spock's vulcan salute is it it comes from jewish tradition 
Do you guys know I about this? Know that I did not know that. No, it's a, it's a, it's like the high priestly symbol that like you make with your that you know they make with their hands, and that and Leonard Nimoy knew that, and he knew that that wasn't going to be like common knowledge, and so he just put it in huh. Star Trek. So all of the kids at Solomon Schechter Day School were like really into Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> so this is like an example of. Uh, Jewish culture being culture being co-opted for good. Um, Not co-opted. Leonard the- Nimoy's Jewish. He did it himself. Oh, is he new- yeah, yeah, is he yeah. Jewish? I yeah. thought he was just Canadian or something. All, this- all Canadians are Jewish. Yeah, um, you, you can oh, be I both. Didn't know that. Yeah. Also, cool. also oh. a good fact. <laughs> was that? A- <laughs> is this also why? Uh- <laughs> is this like, is this like how Mormons can induct dead people into the church? They <laughs> Jewish people can just be like Canada. They're Jewish now, <laughs> pretty much. No, but Leonard Leonard Nimoy actually is is religiously Jewish, and he like just put that in. Yeah. Uh, is is this also why all of my Jewish friends have been able to knock me out by pinching my neck? Yep. I knew it. <laughs> Spock. Yeah. It doesn't work for us though, Aaron. You're just like you're just like, what are you doing, Pete? And then I'm like, Ugh, I get stuck giving you a 40 minute massage. Oh, I'm excited to talk about that because uh, the the joke in this movie where he knocks out the punk came from a real experience for Leonard Nimoy, where he was like. Walking around uh, New York or like on a New York subway and it was a lot of annoying stuff like that. And he's like, hey, you know, if I could knock people out with my hands, everyone would be asleep right now. <laughs> <laughs> so he put it That's in the good. movie. Uh, it, yeah. reads as, it reads as like a grumpy old baby boomers hate. Uh, these 80s kids in the movie so that's a way cuter background for the joke than what it, what i was picturing the the guy who is uh the funk he also is the one singing the song and he was a producer on the movie or like uh so he, was, he might not have been a producer but like a line producer or something and he was really into the sex pistols and he's like i can make a song sounds like the sex pistols so that's him singing as well <laughs> um, that's funny yeah uh, and I've I have had that song in my head probably since I was uh, seven or eight because I watched this movie so much. The oh, I don't like you. I had no idea it wasn't a real song. It definitely sounds like uh, a Sex Pistols song. <laughs> anyway uh so we're gonna get into that as you can tell as i mentioned this is my favorite star trek movie uh i actually like thinking about talking about this tonight i was like man fuck i wish i had time to watch it again uh i really love this movie uh and we're saving peter's thoughts uh as we as we've done where we want peter to say what he what was his like impression of this movie just from the pop culture before he shares it so that's kind of our big reveal for later on but first we have uh tomorrow's yesterday which is a star trek episode where they uh slingshot around the sun causing them to go back in time into the 1960s it is one of two uh star trek the original series episodes where they travel back to the 60s via this method it happens again later in the actually an episode that uh anthony brought up last week uh, Assignment Earth, which was a backdoor pilot for a new series that didn't end up going anywhere, but they used this method to get back there as well. Um, and that's really the big, besides the time travel elements, besides the fish out of water, which I think is obviously more pronounced in the movie than it is in the, the 60s version that we see here. But I imagine that this episode is at least somewhat helpful to understand because in the movie – I remember being like, oh, yeah, slingshot around the sun. Then we go back in time and being like, is that something they did all the time on the show? Because I hadn't seen that much of the show. Uh, And this is where they kind of accidented into that um, 
into that technique. So anyway, so they go back. Uh, they accidentally uh, – there's a pilot who gets sent up because they see a UFO. Um, they accidentally put the tractor beam, destroy a ship. They beam them aboard and they're like, sorry, you can't go back uh, because you've seen our ship. And then they find out that while he's not important to the timeline, uh, his son is. Uh, I think first person who steps foot on Mars and some other stuff like that. Um, and so they have to kind of figure out a way for him to not tell anyone, place him back, and they end up essentially going back in time one more time, dropping him off at the exact moment that he disappears so that there hasn't been all of this exposure to the timeline of of the the star track crew very interesting i think about this episode and i had to double check after i watched it was they talk about uh the moon landing as if it's already happened they talk about the three-person crew and stuff like that and this episode came out two years before we landed on the moon so um it almost feels like uh we'll talk about this a little in star trek 4 of the transport uh the transparent aluminum finally coming to fruition in 2009 uh, it's one of those things where obviously landing on the moon was a big priority, but Star Trek kind of stuck its flag, uh, pun intended, into the idea that they were going to do it soon. And so this this episode kind of has that nice little moment of basically treating it as history, something that hadn't happened yet. So that's the recap. Uh this was – I liked any time travel episode of any Star Trek show. They actually – they didn't do it as often as you'd think. Um, there's only uh, City on the Edge of Forever, this, and uh, Assignment Earth are the only three instances in the original series. And uh, um, there there wasn't that much in the others. There, there was occasional, but they were rare and they were special and I was a big time travel fan. So watching this one as a kid or a junior higher, uh, I really liked it. I think it is somewhat amusing and kind of a general pretty good middle of the road episode. Now, what what was your guys' thoughts on this? Gary, you I, can go first. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't have like a ton, ton to say about it, but I thought that it was a good setup for how they use the time travel, because that was another question I had been wondering too, from watching the movie is like, if how, how often they did things like that and seeing how it worked differently in the episode is interesting. I was actually surprised that they spent so much time with people on the ship rather than the other way around, like they do in the film. Um, But uh, yeah, it was just interesting to see the origin of, of all of that. I, I really, as an episode, I got, I might, this this does have the problem that some of the previous episodes have had, where I feel like it could have been cut down to 30 minutes and been a tighter, stronger thing. Yeah. Part of that is just, I think, too, like, these episodes are 51 minutes, because that's how much commercials were in yeah. an hour-long thing. So, I agree that there's a lot of Star Trek episodes that, as much as we complain about you know, uh, how many commercials they put in broadcast television, like 39 minutes feels some, a lot of times better than 50, 51 minutes. Yeah, yeah. 30, 39, something in, something in there would be would be a little bit tighter. It, and it's not a question of, of you know, uh, low uh, patience or low uh, span of attention um, because the movie had me wrapped the entire time. It's that Shh, don't I, I think that. 
I think that genuinely the because the movie I felt uh, either really into or not into at all for its current runtime. <laughs> Unrelated fact, um, but uh, the, the 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 I I feel like a few of these episodes. They have such amazing ideas that they toss at you at the begin at the beginning, the first fifteen to twenty minutes, and then there's some jockeying for commercial breaks in the last twenty minutes, and you're yeah. like, you're like, this is clearly filler. Like, can we just get to the final scene where Kirk and this captain like sort out their differences or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, I really, but other overall, I really liked it, barring that. Um, and it, it is, it does what great sci-fi of this era does which is it gives you it gives you a bunch of very interesting sci-fi concepts that you feel like the writer's room was very active and very much thinking about these things and laying them out for you pretty clearly in pretty plain english almost like a rod serling thing and like there's literally a moment where where uh before commercial break where uh kirk says to the captain you're a prisoner in time and the captain's like so are you or uh, maybe it's the other way around, but yeah, that, that's that's essentially like the episode being like this is the theme of the episode. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. um, like we're not you're not talking about practicalities at that point. You're talking about big ideas, and that's why I love this episode um, in that sense. But uh, in like a moment to moment sense, I was kind of like my my attention was drifting. <laughs> Yeah, I one thing I really do like about this episode, I like any episode where Shatner is faced with a version of himself and he needs to figure out how to convince him in some respects. Uh, that happens a lot. Sometimes, too, we, we talked about Errand of Mercy last week about how it kind of emphasized their bad qualities or Kirk's bad qualities when compared to uh, the Klingon captain and how they were more similar than they thought – uh, and so Kirk was literally dealing with a Klingon version of himself when it came to, I guess, in that episode, especially his all of a sudden desire to have war, which is, a, as we talked about, a little bit antithetical to the rest of what we see um, for Shatner. But again, continuity sometimes wasn't always great in the 60s. Uh, but I like one thing I really like about this is that um, when they're like, look, you can't tell anyone if you if we were to send you back. And he's like, I'm going to tell people, like, that's my duty. And he's like, what would you do? And Shatner has that wonderful knowing smile, kind of smug smile that he gets. He's like, yeah, I mean, I get it. I would have to tell everyone, too. So I understand that I can't order you and you're not going to be able to convince me um, that that you're not going to tell anyone. And then <laughs> yeah. so Shatner would have been Shatner's from Iowa. If he had had an alien run in like this and he told everyone about how he went on a spaceship and traveled through time or whatever, and then eventually got dumped in a cornfield, uh, he would have been one of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have claimed to have been abducted by aliens. Like he would have been just another dumb hick and never would have made Star Command. Or whatever. Well, I mean, there were there were aliens when he was a kid, though, Peter. I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> like, like they would have been like, oh, you saw Ted. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but they bring him aboard. They bring him aboard, and they they abduct him like a UFO would. Yeah, and it's like Kirk is smiling the whole time, and I feel like, or I guess Shatter is smiling uh, the whole time, and I feel like it's almost like he's like. I'm being an alien. Like <laughs> he's like having fun <laughs> abducting this dude. He's I like, think I he, fucked yeah. up your F. I fucked up your F-15 or where the fuck you were flying, and now you're on my ship. I think he appreciates yeah. the not irony, but just the ridiculousness of the situation. 
um, at, at both Shatner and and his character Kirk. Like I, I do think he is like he's not all that sympathetic about going home to his wife and children, <laughs> but um, uh, that would be a good time for maybe a little bit of serious Captain. Uh, but I I just like that because then he starts to get serious once he's confronted with the fact that he has to send him back. But also knowing everything else where this person is absolutely going to tell everything that they saw, all the experience, that now it that's when he becomes a prisoner of time too. Like in order for him to get back to uh, – back to the, the future present, he needs to send this person back. But if he sends that person back, they're going to run into a city on the edge of forever situation where um, the future may not be what he's expecting. So – uh, I I really like that because it's not it's he no one's a villain really in that situation like Shatner it, this is just like an early version of Shatner uh, or or an early version of Kirk um, from his like entire posture and attitude into like how much he believes in in the Air Force in the same way that Kirk really believes in Starfleet so I I just really like that uh, any time that. Kirk is just up against himself because, um, you know, one thing they, they do a good job of like Star Trek two, especially really establishes this mythos, even among Starfleet captains of, of captain Kirk, not just because he's the only one that we, we see on his adventures, but they really make a point of like, he is special. He is the only person that ever beat the unwinnable scenario. He's like, you know, the person who they always go to, to save the day and so when he is confronted with himself, it's always his biggest challenge of figuring out how to best uh, do that. And they did that a lot in these episodes. Uh, Balance of Terror, an episode we didn't get to, is like uh, him going face-to-face submarine captain style with a Romulan commander. And uh, Errand of Mercy, we talked about, is him going face-to-face with his version of the Klingon uh, a Klingon commander. And here we have version of uh, past uh, Kirk. So I, I just really like that. I think it's done well. Yeah. That's the best part of this episode. He has a sense of like, this is a ridiculous situation. I'm kind of having fun. The fact that Kirk responds to the situation being like moral conundrum for me to figure out like, yeah. how do I get the hell out of this puzzle. And he, and he feels like, you know, my crew is probably not going to die on this. It's just that we're in a weird situation where I might must fuck with the space-time continuum, but, like, what am I going to do? Like, that is interesting to put him up against someone else who has a similar set of rules or is in some way his his foil. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other side of that is that this episode is kind of the dark side of movies that would come later. Like, Explorers, Last Starfighter, Flight of the Navigator... Yeah, close encounters of the third kind to some degree. Like this idea that like just being picked up by a starship and then being like, well, I'm going off to see a whole other planet, um, leaving everything behind. This is like the almost the dark side of it. It's like, well, you still got like a wife and kids back there. Uh, yeah. Well, this yeah, this is the only Star Trek episode where uh, Kirk has to face the conundrum of: Do I kidnap this man or let him go and fuck his wife? <laughs> <laughs> They could have done. They could have done what Kang and Kodos do, and just spray him with rum, and then leave him on the ground, <laughs> so no one believes them. I also like how in this episode and and the movie they kind of use the time travel as a way to have sort of commentary on what was current day 
at the time yeah. of production like that that great moment when he when he first arrives on the ship and he sees like female crew members and is like scandalized by that yeah i kind of like those touches as a way of them being able to have that commentary about you know w- the things the things happening nowadays that will look funny a thousand years from now it's yeah. like uh, in Starship Troopers where the men and the women bathe together. Uh, yeah. And they're all they're all just being jocks together. Like they're not like everybody is just kind of being bros, being jocks, like smacking each other on the ass and making fun of each other and and it's like it's not about like well I'm banging this person. That's actually much later in the movie. It's about like, well, and we're all in this shit together. Yeah, and I that's something we talked about on one of our earlier episodes, that Star Trek is really good at being progressive for its time. Like, oh, yeah. It's not, it's not progressive for now, and just like whatever we're watching now that we consider progressive probably won't be considered that 10 years from now. But it's though we're still we are still fighting the fight about women being in the military. Like they're still legislating whether or not women can be on the front lines, which is like insane. Well, but you even have like in this episode, I think that kind of shows where they're like, yes, of course, women crew members, you idiot. And then they have the computer who has a uh, a, a woman's voice that was recently changed. They inform him, and even Kirk is like, they thought we needed a woman's touch to be nicer, and now it's just hitting on me. Like <laughs> it, it, it. Even there is like mocking this idea that women can, of course, be in the in the in Starfleet in the military. But then they like kind of get a few like misogynist and sexist jokes in there about about oh women in this time in compute computer form from a yeah. planet of women that thought we needed it us men. That feels like, like a that feels like a producer note. Like they're like this episode isn't funny enough. Put a horny computer in there. Yeah, I, I want a shitty uh, version of her in there, and they're like, it's "Her," and it's like, "Don't worry, you'll find out." It. I'm going in my, I'm going in my normal closet. That's not a time machine. Uh, I like the idea of the horny computer, but again, the way that they set it up is kind of shitty. It's very Expect- weird. I love yeah. that Janelle Monae album, horny, horny computer. computer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I just, I just appreciate that they're trying for any sort of like, yeah. social awareness, even though it's obviously not going to be completely successful and there are going to be plenty of things that we look at now and think uh oh yeah but the fact that they're attempting to do that as some sort of commentary is i think refreshing and not something i would have necessarily expected and that really was a gene roddenberry was not always great at story but he was so adamant about having these these um you know he like he fought so hard for the first interracial kiss between Ohura and Kirk in a season three episode, like having um, putting a check off in the crew in season two uh, when he got a lot of flack from the network about having a Russian. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. like, even though it's even though it's Walter Koenig doing a voice, it was like, this is important. Like, I need to show people that this Cold War will be over at some point. And, you know, that uh, for for as much as Gene Roddenberry had, uh, you know, failings as much as anyone else, that was like he really meant for Star Trek to be a way to kind of sneak up uh, or s- sneak progressive ideas right into people's faces. And that sounds like a weird way to say it. But that was always his idea. Like, I can show that episode of, like, even though it's kind of silly in retrospect, 
the let let it be your last battlefield where you have a person who um is uh has white uh, on his left side of his face and black on his right side and they uh are racist against people with black on the left side and white on the right to kind of show how racism was stupid at a time that like you were not allowed to talk about that on tv and you know even though a lot of those metaphors are kind of like have been parodied and um or allegories, I should say, have been kind of parodied or joked about and sometimes seem very quaint. Like, this is obviously the message. Like, that's what Star Trek for him was. It was a vehicle to to kind of give people hope for the future when it came to equality and touch on these themes that you were 100% not allowed to do on television. Yeah. And that, you know, I, that spoke to me for, for as a kid, too. Like, this idea of, you know... I. Even being a, a white, straight, cis kid, like, you can understand why I think a lot of, like, 10, 11-year-olds of all, like, uh, all types of people gravitate towards this because it really is a show where, especially later on in Next Generation, which I was watching, which had even moved further uh, in some ways in their 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 uh, values and ideas, it was a show where like it was the world that you wanted to exist and so i think that's why you have a lot of people you know watching some documentaries or reading of uh, that that come from this kind of they basically got a lot of their progressive politics from watching star trek and then developed from there the, the movie that we're going to talk about um because the the modern day episodes i'm just like stuck in this conundrum of being like, there's a huge gulf between that culture and your culture. Um, and I want to live in your post-scarcity, post-money spaceship culture uh, where war is rare and it's all about understanding other peoples and yada yada. And it's and, and in the second in the movie we're going to talk about uh, Star Trek Four, we're going home, Chewy. It's basically like. It feels like someone's gloating about how awesome their house is. They're like, you guys still use money? I can't believe it. I See, I feel like it's much more fish-out-of-water goofiness than gloating. Yeah. There's times where Kirk just has that fucking smug smile that, that where he's just like, you don't understand. He's just kind of a dick, though. Yeah. Like, in general, right? Yeah. 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 Which is my point. He's kind of a dick about his future being so much better than ours. I get it, dude. But I have to live here, okay? I don't think yeah, that's like, unique. I don't think that's unique to this movie, though. No. It's, it's like you came to my house and you're like, you don't have a room that's filled with sex clouds? I don't even know how you live. Uh, all right. But like, in all fairness, Peter, if you went back 300 years, like, yeah. you go back to 1716 and, and someone goes, oh, so you got a scrape. Put some leeches on it and kill your firstborn or whatever the fuck. You'd be like, no, thank is, you. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, you guys are still killing your firstborn for scrapes and bruises. No, like, I would say I would say when in Rome, get rid of that kid. Uh, yeah. Well, that's just uh, that's the only form of birth control they had back then. <laughs> I don't know if that's funny. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> pulling the collar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kirk in the past, it always feels like he's like, this is fun, but uh, I gotta go back to my awesome house after this. Yeah, the only other the only other thing, I disagree with you, I just think that's his, that is his response to everything. I know you haven't seen that many episodes yet, but like, 
when Khan is well, I guess Khan would be an ex- would actually be an example that would prove your point. But I think there's a lot of those times where he hears about any situation and he just kind of goes, "Oh, interesting." <laughs> like that's kind of his his tone. That's a lot of that's a lot of Shatner. Um, one of my favorite. The last thing I'll say about this episode is just a really dumb, funny thing. I love that when they beam down <laughs> to to the uh, Air Force base to kind of steal stuff. No one thinks to maybe wear clothes of the time. Yeah. Like, like I just, there's, that. that's something that changes pretty dramatically in every other instance of Star Trek going back in time. But I like, they're like, all right, we're going to go. We don't want to arise <laughs> or arouse suspicion. But let's just keep our weirdo uniforms on that clearly look like an invading military force and just go root around a little. <laughs> like, they don't even take the pilot's uniform to use it. No. Uh, and they show that they can basically make things uh, somewhat appear like someone's going to have a different outfit. They're like, all right, let's be really sneaky. You got your shiny gold shirt? Great. <laughs> I kind of appreciate that to show how out of, t- how out of, out of touch they are. In a way. that Yeah, that's good. And it doesn't, it helps too that because they probably weren't allowed to use like actual military Air Force uniforms. Like everyone there is wearing purple. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they thought, maybe they are smarter than us and they thought they would blend in. They were like, this is not a licensed Air Force base. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> These people are operating in Look, a we have very jets. loose sort of uh, regulation restriction. I'm just going to, I'm just going to wing it. Yeah. Uh, hey, I thought I was joining the Air Force. Where's my uniform that I've seen in all the, the newspaper ads? They're like, look, prices and participation may vary. We have <laughs> the jets, but we're doing our own uniform thing, bud. <laughs> I like to imagine that like th- these like neutral countries that haven't been at war for a long time, like Switzerland, that's how their army is. Is They're just like, it's basically just a repository for all the people that really want to murder other people. So they're just like, uh, yeah, here's your uh, ski sweater. <laughs> like, I thought I was going to get like some fatigues. I, th- I thought I was going to get some sort of fatigues or something that was going to make me look really cool. Uh, 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 but uh, I, I, I mean, a, a ski sweater with a very large flag would be very identifiable. Yeah, yeah, that's all we're going to give you. Uh, yeah, we uh, we stole all these from uh, from a Playhouse in the, the the 1850s. So we're just giving out uniforms that are in the box. But like, oh, you get a military one, great. One person was dressed as a chimp, and that was just his uniform. He's a colonel. He's a colonel. He's Colonel Chimp, we call them. Uh, so, so you're telling me my job is to feed monkeys when I'm in, in the army, yes? Yes. yes. Well, you're, if you're, you're, on, the, if you're on the monkey duty, yeah. Like, <laughs> what do you, why do you think we call it monkey duty? Uh, I think on monkey duty, we can transition into talking about the voyage back on home. Monkey business on that one. Yep. The plot of Star Trek Four will go quick. Uh, so it picks up right after the events of Star Trek Three. They are still on Vulcan with the Klingon Bird of Prey. Uh, and uh, Spock has been doing tests 
to kind of because he has his memory back, but he's trying to prove that he has his knowledge and kind of like who he is, his chakra. Uh, I think they refer to it in Star Trek three back like because uh, he's still calling uh, his friend Shatner or his friend Kirk uh, Admiral as opposed to Jim. And he's just he's just not himself, even if he has the memories. Uh, so meanwhile, they're kind of being tried back on Earth for stealing the ship. And doing a bunch of other uh, uh, shit. And so they all vote to go back, face their trial, face the consequences. And while they're on their way, a probe is starts ripping through the Federation, gets to Earth, starts tearing stuff up. Uh, Kirk realizes that they're – or Spock and Kirk and the crew realize that they're trying to speak to whales, which uh, – humpback whales, which had went extinct in the 21st century. And so they use their go back in time around the sun – trick to go back to the 80s uh ironically 1986 the year this movie was shot I'm sure that's an accident um to to get some humpback whales and bring them back so they can tell the probe everything is cool please stop accidentally killing everyone um so they do that they go back uh and everyone kind of gets discrete missions so uh they are cloaked which helps so but their dilithium crystals burn out so Chekhov and Uhura go to try to uh, uh, get nuclear uh, stuff to re-energize the crystals. Scotty and McCoy go to kind of get something that can house uh, the humpback whales. Spock and Kirk go to um, to find humpback whales, where they which they do at the San Francisco uh, Aquarium. So they meet Dr. Jillian Taylor who is a marine biologist who uh, is supervising Gracie and George, two of the humpback whales uh, that they're going to need to release from captivity. And then Sulu goes to steal a helicopter. uh, He doesn't get much of a (laughs) – everyone else has a lot of fun. Uh, Sulu, unfortunately, uh, just is by himself to go steal a helicopter so that they can actually bring the – what ends up being transparent aluminum. So from here on out, they have these great little discrete missions – and it's a lot of fish out of water comedy, all while trying to accomplish their goals. And especially for the Kirk Spock component is trying to kind of unlock the part of Spock that's missing, the, his human part uh, that he kind of eventually embraced to some extent that led to kind of his friendship and uh, emotions under the surface. Um uh, so at the end, they accomplish their goals. They get the humpback whales uh, who are out on the high seas. They beam them up into the ship. They get back home. Uh, they uh, they save the planet, save the Federation. And so uh, Kirk and his team, his crew, uh, their, con- their, their consequence is that he, is, uh, he goes from admiral back to captain and is given uh, the uh, new incarnation of the Enterprise, the Enterprise uh, 1701A, and gets to go be a captain again. So it's a great um, it's a great kind of closing arc that started in Star Trek II where he had, again, given up his command and was teaching at the Academy and feeling like he was both past his prime and also missed out on the one thing he loved most. So it, it kind of brings everything back to the way it was uh, in a very emotionally fulfilling way way um and as i said uh i this is my favorite it's just a blast it is so funny it it's it has a 
you know, uh, a message that it's trying to deliver that was, you know, save the oceans was, uh, was very popular in the eighties and they really went for it. So it's, you know, there's no villain. I'm actually read the quote from Nicholas Meyer, who, um, who helped write it is that they, the first three had been so serious that they were like, let's just have fun. Uh, let's not worry about continuity with time travel. Let's just, let's just have a blast. And he said, his rules for writing the script was no dying, no fighting, no shooting, no photon torpedoes, no phaser blasts, no stereotypical bad guy. I wanted people to have a great time watching this. And if somewhere in the mix we lobbed a couple of big ideas at them, well, that would be even better. And you realize there is enough – no one dies. This is the only Star Trek movie where no one dies, background characters, anything else, uh, where there's not a phaser fired, where there's not um, uh, any sort of like – true villain besides like the whaling ship or something like that it it they're not even wearing their starfleet uniforms they don't have the enterprise on paper it feels like the least star trek movie but it it just in in actuality you just get to spend a lot of time with this crew that you probably love to some respects at this point and get them to interact in a way that you've just never really seen before, all while making a, a just an extremely successful movie. So this was uh, this was a huge hit. Uh, Star Trek as a series tends to constantly need these hits, these low points and high points. Uh, Star Trek Two kind of revitalized the disappointment from a lot of perspectives of, of the motion picture. Star Trek Three was seen seen as kind of a step down from that financially, and then Star Trek Four was huge. It's still the most profitable Star Trek um, movie. Uh, it it was so big that its um, novelization uh, hit the number two on the New York Times bestseller list and stayed on the like I think the top ten for eight weeks. Uh, we, this is the this is the movie that uh, Shatner ended up hosting Saturday Night Live the first time and only time I think he ever did that that did his famous um, get a life to the fans convention uh, skit. Um, and also really revitalized everyone's interest in Star Trek again because it was so accessible to everyone else to make the next generation a hit. Uh, so that even when Star Trek V kind of once again made people roll their eyes, the next generation became huge so quickly because people were really enthused for Trek following this movie. So that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of <laughs> uh, ground laying, both plot wise and just uh, just um, what this movie means to the franchise. Uh Carrie, I'm excited to hear your thoughts, but let's, Pete, we got to know. First, what was your idea of this movie going into it? Just knowing it as maybe the whale movie, the time travel movie, the goofy one, whatever it is. And then what did you end up thinking about it? I didn't even know this was the whale movie. I thought that came later in like a more desperate era. And I didn't know that this one, the whale movie was successful, like incredibly successful. I assumed the whale movie was a big bomb and the fans rejected it as some sort of, you know, hokey environmentalist message, yada, yada. Um, But instead, but you knew there was a whale movie. But I knew that there was a movie and I feel like the consensus is almost flipped that people would make fun of the fact that there was an environmentalist movie. But I really loved that this is a, this is a sweet, whole, like wholesome Star Trek movie that's like kind of 
it, it kind of feels like it's taking back the original series where it's like, yes, we're going to be solving problems using these sci-fi materials and, and, you know, interacting with other cultures, even if that culture is the culture your the audience is in, right? But uh, it's going to be a little bit more fun than the last few movies, which have all been this is the end of the fucking world. And this movie actually begins with an incredibly, incredibly apocalyptic scenario, like a hopeless apocalyptic scenario, way worse than any the previous movies have even had. And uh, then it's basically framed that way. And then the whole middle section, I don't know, the middle 75% of the movie is like this like fun, flippy adventure movie in San Francisco that feels very of its era. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in like a kind of fun way. Uh, the, the straight ahead, the lightness of it, very comforting. And especially this late in the series, it's nice to feel like they still have a good grasp of the characters, which yeah. I feel like... like every series lost what the characters were going into the 80s right like ran, like even like fucking first blood to rambo 2 like like every every series that entered the 80s all of a sudden was like <laughs> like hey you know what uh what if we made all this shit macho and really dumb yeah well and actually peter the question i have for you too is that like so this really wraps up that trilogy of stories that began with khan with uh, losing Spock, losing the Enterprise, and then kind of getting what he wanted, which was his uh, captain and command back and all that kind of stuff. Like, um, a lot of times, you know, those kind of, like, uh, endings of a trilogy feel a lot more epic. And I think this still, like, what I've always been impressed about this movie, when you get past the how funny and how light and how enjoyable it is, is that it actually wraps up all of those story beats from the first two movies in a very serious and emotionally satisfying way without, like, doing it in the way that you would ever expect a, like, conclusion of a little mini trilogy to do. So, like, from that perspective, from the kind of story arc that began with Wrath of Khan, what did you feel like this kind of... Um, this kind of met the expectation to because I said early on that like they get Spock back, but it's kind of, they don't aren't aren't just like he's back, he's fine. Like getting the Enterprise back, getting Spock back to who he is feels earned. So having now got to this point in this, do you think that's accurate? Or would you? Yeah, agree? yeah. I, I I feel like this is like almost like an epilogue to it because like. Even though there is a main threat, it's an entirely new main threat. And the, in epilogues of, of a lot of great stories, it's almost like we went through all this shit together and now we can kind of like uh, enjoy it. We can enjoy us kind of like reconnecting. Um, and it's almost like Spock and Kirk are getting the romance back. Like they're figuring each other's dynamic out for the first time, whereas the last movie it was... Uh, incredibly nascent like uh, non-existent basically because they didn't have a chance to and in this one it's like it, it's like okay the klingon war is over um and i know there's stuff to resolve i guess like kirk on trial but like i think when the movie ends you're like kirk's not going to jail whatever <laughs> oh he's getting he's getting a new ship 
They actually I know they have thing. to address this because this is it's Star Trek, and they're like, well, there needs to be fallout for these actions, yada yada. But um, but I actually like that because Kirk rarely faces fallout for his actions, and when he's he's coming home and he's done all the stuff in Star Trek Three, like it it feels like something that he hasn't had to face before. You know that he is literally like, I've lost my ship. I'm probably going to end up in jail. I he. I gave up my career, which I always said was the most important thing for family, which we talked about last episode. Um, and so it really feels like a reckoning that he's never had to face because he he's always been cocksure and brash and didn't follow the prime directive and all this stuff. And he's never, you know, because it was a weekly show, he never had to face consequence. There is an episode uh, – court martial and sometimes you know they get in trouble but he's always back to normal at the end and, and this time it does even though it ends up there it feels like it's a little different at the beginning of this the series is ultimately about like working through the rationale of all this stuff and like yeah this what the, the events of the last movie half the time i was thinking about it, i was like yes it's very important they stop the destruction of the universe and and uh, the klingons taking over everything but on the other hand, I was like, this is actually really going to have fallout. This is going to have an international incident yeah. uh, being caused because uh, Christopher Lloyd Klingon is uh, not not con. Uh, hasn't really like clearly broken from his race or his his country, his, his whatever, his planet. So this is clearly going to cause some shit. And it's kind of nice in the fir- in the next movie, them just being like, there's some shit to deal with. <laughs> uh, and they'll pick up some of those threads in Star Trek Six, actually. So You, you can uh, tell how grumpy I am by my furrowed brow. Put this man so in jail! Furrowed. Put him it's in so, jail! It's so furrowed it goes back to the center of my head. Um, but anyway, so that's... Sorry if I, that's racist against Klingons. Um, but I'm glad you liked it. I, we'll talk about more. Carrie... So this is the only one you've seen. Yeah, and I've seen it a couple times. Um, I think it's just a blast. Um, I, it's interesting how you talked about how it's the end of a three-film arc, because I also think that it works really well as a standalone film. Yeah, I'm see, sh- that's what I want to get into. Yeah. Because, like, I don't, rem- I don't have that memory of, of, of how standalone it is, but you, that's all you have right now. So I'm very curious. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the beginning, I, I caught up a little bit on Wikipedia. Like I, I was aware even the first time I watched that the beginning was not something I would have a context for and just kind of let it wash over me. Um, Mm -hmm. but most of the movie is just this fun story about the whales in San Francisco and fish out of water and, you know, that Kirk <laughs> literal fish li- out of water, literal and figurative fish out of water, and and <laughs> and Kirk and Spock interacting with this badass scientist lady who you know will stop at nothing to like not be separated from her whales, like to the point of actually like going back on the ship with them. I just think she's such a great character. Um, yeah, she's so good. She's so good, and. Yeah, I I just supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy. We can talk about that in a second. What? What? Well, yeah, we'll get into oh, that. God. Go on. Sorry. No, I just I think it's real fun. Um, I yeah, I, I I am curious since you were talking about it. I'm curious now to watch the the previous two to have like some bigger cultural context for it. But I mean, it's 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 just lovely it's just a lovely film that um 
I really enjoyed watching again. I forget who referred to it as the Star Trek movie non-Star Trek fans have seen. Uh, I, it may have been a contemporaneous review, but it really does feel like that. Yeah. Like, this is the one you could show to anyone and have a good time. And I I don't know what it is, but I always tend to prefer in large franchises like this, I always tend to prefer the more standalone films anyway. I I have a hard time keeping up with all of the mythology that these universes create. And it's fun to just have a one-off like this where it's its own story and you can just enjoy it on its own merits without trying to remember everything else that's ever happened. Well, it's just something that like I also think I, I, I don't know if it would ever happen again. I, I feel – I don't want to make some big hyperbolic statement, but, you know, the reason why this movie exists is that they really – they wanted to give Leonard Nimoy more creative freedom because he, he felt boxed in by Search for Spock, which already had an ending when he – you know, the ending was Spock is back. Right. Um, after dying. And so they literally almost gave him kind of carte blanche and he – um eventually we'll circle up with Nicholas Meyer who had directed Star Trek 2 and will direct Star Trek 6 and um, after a few versions of this concept of time traveling and having fun which again uh, so the original actual concept was Eddie Murphy really wanted to star in a Star Trek movie <laughs> he, he was a huge fan uh, wow hot at Par- uh, and he was a Paramount star too because Beverly Hills Cop was 1984 um, so Paramount was like fuck yes Let's do it. So they wrote a script for where he was a UFOlogist who sees the Klingon bird of prey decloak over the Super Bowl. Everyone else assumes it's a special effect. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he thinks it's real. So he goes to try to discover them. And then they're trying to – there's some plague where some uh, – there, there's some plague going on in the 23rd century where they have to get a um, some sort of like herb or something that's extinct. So that's why they're back. Like, uh, they have to go back to get some sort of plant so they can make medicine. And then Eddie Murphy is is that person. So Eddie Murphy, when he got the script, he was ready to star. He he was pissed. He he didn't want to be he, he didn't want to be the the human person or not the human person, but like the the person who is the fish in water. He wanted to be part of Starfleet. Like he wanted to wear the uniform. He wanted to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, and so he opted to do the Golden Child instead, and then uh, Leonard Nimoy brought Nicholas Meyer in um, to change it, and basically that uh, that Doctor Taylor uh, became became basically that part. Taylor hates whalers. Yes. Taylor hates whalers. Yeah. Taylor okay, got whalers. it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Easy to remember. Got it. Thank we you. can just remember her as the mom from Seventh Heaven. <laughs> that oh is really God, how I'm remembering her. And the dad from Seventh Heaven who will not be remembered in any other way. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, oh. he's in Star Trek One. Yep, he's in. Oh, right. uh, he's Captain Commander Decker. Commander Captain Decker. Decker. Yeah. yeah, and less yeah. said about well, him, the better, demoted, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I remember being like, I mean, like he's so cool. He made it to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and then I saw a couple of news articles, and I was like, he is decidedly not cool. He's very uncool. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit i haven't even read the news articles guys oh no spoilers for no. real life oh, okay. wait wait have you really not yeah i have no idea what you guys are talking about but now i don't want to 
What? Yeah, what happened? <laughs> I'll look it up later. It'll never mind. Okay, uh, but yeah, the point is that that both the Seven Heaven parents have been played crucial roles in the Star Trek movies. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and she was and actually nothing the mom else in, to say in, about in, the Seventh Heaven dad. <laughs> and she, uh, she was actually uh, the the mom in uh, Child's Play too, which I watched for the first time this last Spooktober. Catherine Hicks. Yes, is um, and I was like, oh shit, because I never watched Seventh Heaven, but that's interesting to note. Yeah, so uh, so that's really how it kind of. Uh, started and then uh, you know uh, Leonard Nimoy had this ability to kind of do whatever he wanted but why that still to get back to my point why it still seems unique is like when are they're not going to do I think that's what we all thought Solo was going to be when Lord and Miller were involved where oh they're going to do a fun goofy Star Wars movie or they're going to do a fun goofy Marvel movie Um, and I think even though some Marvel movies have been a little more goofy and fun, like Ant-Man or Guardians of the Galaxy, like they still have these overarching stakes. They still have villains. A lot of them still go into the big action set pieces uh, at the end. And this this really feels um, almost insane. Like the idea to take this huge franchise and do this movie that strips so much of the Star Trek stuff away from it. And then just makes a comedy. It's with no. It's it's so like it's so weird. It's funny you bring up Marvel because the the movie that this most reminds me of is Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good touch. Point. Which does have it does have a villain and it does have action scenes, but that's not the point of the movie at all. The point of no. the movie is Thor and the Hulk like being ridiculous together yeah so i I think i think that they that there are some similarities there i agree and so funny because i also thought about thor just about um the best part of the first thor movie is that hour in the middle where he's just uh a fish out of water oh yeah exactly how he reacts to just everything on earth oh yeah the best the best the only moment i remember for that movie the only moment I, moment I remember from that movie is when he finishes coffee at a diner and he throws the cup down and smashes it on the floor and then <laughs> says, more. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. That's the only scene I remember from the movie. And that shows you how the first hour of the, the fish out of water comedy in Thor is like when the movie is really clocking. And then when it's like, oh, yeah, we have to be a superhero movie, too. And, they, and it's like, I don't know. He fights like a fucking golem in the desert. I don't know what he does. I don't know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And that's that's so many of those movies, too. Like. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, we still have to have the action set pieces. But uh, I think if they did like a Thor 5 and they did that, they may have just went with straight comedy. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that's but anyways, wh- and that's what I love in Ragnarok, right. that it's just it's the characters just having fun with each other. And I feel like that's what this movie is, too. It's just the characters enjoying but, being with each other. Very much so. Uh, and we should like I mentioned how funny it is. It is very funny. Um, I, I wrote down some quotes uh, for. There's there's some obvious ones like the uh, nuclear vessels, yeah, uh, which which is funny, but it's also funny the whole like Alameda where he keeps saying in Alameda, and then the person's like, yeah, I think that's in across the bay in Alameda. He's like, that's what I said. I said Alameda. Um, <laughs> where they that's very funny. Uh, but my favorite thing that they keep going to this well, and I think they strike gold every time is uh, is the swearing. It's so good. Um, it's so good. The the double dumbass on you is just fucking fantastic, <laughs> and I hope you all start using it in your day, yeah, uh, day to life. Um, and then whenever then Spock trying to pick it up, it leads to two of my favorite uh, lines, which is when they're talking about the whales, and he goes, "The hell they did." 
Oh. <laughs> so good. And then and then when he is uh when he is explaining to uh to them that he is telling the truth, he says, No ma'am, no dipshit. Uh <laughs> so good uh i just enjoy when kirk's like you really need to stop trying to talk like a person it's not <laughs> yeah, working for you <laughs> the colorful metaphors yeah. um just that whole conversation of uh you know it's just what you got to do you got to say double dumbass on you and then they listen to you <laughs> um uh just but that i suppose that's uh that's kind of what peter was talking about it's like oh just start saying the swear words because yeah. that's what the people in the 80s like <laughs> that's what that's what the kind of that's that's some of like the baby boomer grumpiness that i read in the subtext of this is like the is, is them being like hating punks on the bus messing with their their life and uh them thinking this culture moves too fast and is confusing um but on the other hand it's that's it's more dominated by them just being fish out of water and being confused by the customs and like the fact that seeing kirk and all them be so stupid about money (laughs) is very funny like the idea of um the idea of them going in with the the sunglasses and being like (laughs) and being like uh uh, oh, they're worth a hundred dollars. Uh, and him being like <laughs> his big goofy that, smile on that scene like, is so good. Is Great. that good? And, and I'm like, is that dude, what? you are on a fucking spaceship that's capable of intergalactic travel, and you don't have like a fucking inflation calculator on your ship. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you got nothing. All right. But uh, that is that is that is like a funny line, and like, um. I do like the fact that Spock in this movie is essentially like he's he's like their booger from Revenge of the Nerds or like Hey, he did a lot of LDS. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of yeah, he's kind of like the stoner friend in this movie because they need to contextualize him into an 80s comedy and so it's like Spock has a concussion the whole movie and no one wants to take him to the hospital. <laughs> yeah which is what a lot of people uh think uh i would be remiss if i didn't mention that what i think is the funniest scene of this movie and also hits to why i think this movie is so enjoyable can we guess what i think the funniest scene in this movie is uh, uh I'm not, i don't know the mccoy scotty scene oh yeah oh where they're talking sense. to the yeah the guy who is uh and they tell him the secret to transparent aluminum and all of Scotty's uh, both trying to act like he's a bigwig, but also being a genius who is completely perplexed by the technology of the time. So that is a very funny else. scene. Very funny scene. Yeah. But I think it's it speaks to something that they they essentially never did again in Star Trek time travel stuff that I can remember. And they usually never do in any time travel movie, which is. They don't give a shit about changing um, the future in this movie. Uh, And that scene really exemplifies it because McCoy is even like, hey, you think it's a problem we're giving him this futuristic formula? This guy's like, fuck it. Maybe he invented it. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe this is a closed loop. And and I think that is really the key to this movie's success because as much as I like time travel as a narrative device – too much time travel stuff gets bogged down into the Sound of Thunder stuff. Like, you change one thing and it affects the past and that sometimes hurts this ability for the fish out of water comedy moments where they're just allowed to have these future men play in 1980s without fear of 
repercussion. And that all of these moments were and that I think that compares to tomorrow's yesterday too, where tomorrow's yesterday, they're very concerned about repercussions. It's the whole arc of the episode. And it just if they had done that in this movie, I think you couldn't have it couldn't have been as lighted on its feet and you couldn't have had as all the fun moments you get. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, I think everyone kind of gets their own space to be funny and gets room to breathe. Scotty is usually just like wiping his brow and going like, I can't go any further, Captain. Like it's mostly he is in a lot of these movies, the impression that that SNL or stand up comedians would make of him, uh, which is kind of sad. But in this movie, they kind of got to make him into like they got they, they let the leash off a little bit. Um, and uh, as a consummate McCoy fan, McCoy is the best <laughs> character on the show. <laughs> Seeing him be grumpy. Uh, in these scenes, be like, "Hey, dude, uh, we fucking things up or what?" Uh, it's great. Um, His anger also- at '80s medicine is really good. And I, yes, that is a great scene. The scene where he's performing a, a repair on a nerve inside of uh, Chekhov's brain, and he's he's just like, uh, "What the fuck are you doing? Get out! Get out of my way!" And literally, Shatner has to like hold the nurses at gunpoint away so he can perform the surgery. Is very funny. And the doctors are like, this person's going to murder our patient. We need to stop him. Um, The context of it makes it funnier. But the other scene that I really like with McCoy is when McCoy is like, because he's always sparring with Spock, right? Oh, I know what scene. And he's like, he comes in, he's like, he's like, hey, Spock. So like, uh, what are we, what are we going to do here? Hey, you want to maybe I'll say something and then you'll tell me I'm being a dumbass and then I'll come back at you and be really pissed off and then we won't really resolve it, but we never murder each other. Do you want to do that thing? And Spock's just like, oh, hi. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I thought he's like, I don't understand. He's like, I don't understand the whole thing we have here. Do you mind uh, maybe leaving me? I'm trying to work here. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the scene that I really like, which is actually like spock not having that sparring even understanding but still instinctively getting under mccoy's skin yes um, that's exactly it is because yeah. he, he he doesn't it's not that he's trying to piss off McCoy. Yeah. it's that he can't just the way he processes thoughts yeah on a piss, genetic piss level McCoy. yeah it's because mccoy is a space racist in a way well i just love the whole like you know he's like hey just tell me, like, what was death like? Like, I'm a doctor. It's the biggest question I can think of. He's like, sorry, the you, uh, the without a comparative experience, there's no way for me to say it. And McCoy's like, so you're saying I have to die for you to share your thoughts on death with me? He's like, yeah. And, and that is such a perfect, like, I'm not trying to piss you off, McCoy. Um, but that's the fact. Like, you just can't understand this. The biggest question you've ever wanted to know. Uh, I love it so much. Yeah, it's really that's, good. That's a uh, that's really good shit. Um, I, but yeah, I I really love all the McCoy stuff in this movie because he doesn't always get room to breathe in these movies because there's yeah. usually not enough time for a doctor to be pertinent. Um, they, I mean, like he might be treating patients or whatever while this is all happening, but he's usually not central to the plot. And in this, like he, it's it's almost like an Ocean's Eleven movie or something. Like it's a it's a team hustle to get everything in in its place. And I, I love that there's like essentially Takai's part was cut 
down to nothing. Yeah, yeah. he's not there very much. He's like, nice helicopter, and then like 40 minutes later that he has the helicopter. He really fucking hated Shatner. Um, to the point that in Star Trek, so he mentions at the end of this movie that he's interested in Excelsior, uh, which is the ship we saw in Star Trek 3 that they uh, sabotage, the new fast cool ship. Um, I forget his role in Star Trek 5. I haven't seen Star Trek 5 in a while because it's, it is the worst of these original series movies. Um, so I forget his role in there. But by Star Trek 6, he hated Shatner so much that he doesn't – he's on a different ship. He does not share a scene with Shatner. Wow. And you feel like if they had a little bit more sense of uh, place, they could have turned that into a thing, like Shatner's team slowly turning on him because they're like, I'm getting fucking old, man. Like, And you're just like, you're just dragging our ass in the mud every week. I guess it's because Shatner always wins. They can't do that. But like, you feel like they could have done some sort of meta meta commentary. Like if this were a a TV show at this point, they could have done some sort of meta commentary where like these characters are on a different ship because they literally cannot listen to Shatner's orders anymore. They, uh, Kirk's orders anymore. They don't well, trust you, them anymore. You just have a weird dynamic because Nimoy and Shatner are really good friends. Like they were friends for most of this time. Everyone else hates Shatner. And everyone has a really good relationship with Nimoy. So you almost have like Nimoy who is the center of all of it, right? He he's he's the only person that can talk to Shatner. They're good friends. And he like he doesn't just do that because I'm the only one that can talk to him. Like he talked about in his in the documentary, in his biography, like he really respected uh him and they had a really good friendship. And he was the person that sometimes had to talk Shatner down from things, but it's only because, like, he was a friend and he, want, and he wanted to look out for them. Then on the flip side, he's the only one looking out for the rest of the cast members, too. Um, when they did the Star Trek animated series, they were going to cut out a couple people. And Nimoy was always the first person to go, it's all of us or none of us. And Shatner could not have cared less about that stuff. So you just have a really interesting dynamic. And I would have to refresh my memory maybe i will by the time we record our star trek 6 what the impetus was uh was for takai to truly be like fuck him i don't even want to be in the scenes with him anymore and i think nimoy was instrumental in including him in in getting nicholas meyer to still include him in the movie uh in this other kind of role that allowed him to not have to share scenes with uh with shatner that's uh, really but i don't remember I don't remember the specifics, but having said that, he was at the he he was at the roast of William Shatner, and I remember he did some interviews afterwards where because he was not nice to Shatner, not even in the fun roast way, uh, quote unquote fun <laughs> roast way. Like he, I think he ended his set with like, and just so you know, we all fucking hated you, <laughs> like with a level of sincerity. <laughs> um, that uh, was like him, like exercising these demons after so long. So wow, um, yeah, it was it was bad. And they talk about it a lot. I remember reading Jimmy Doohan's, uh, who plays Scotty's biography um, in the '90s as well, and they he talked about it a lot too in there. Um, Nichelle Nichols fucking hated him as well. Like it, it really was. And 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 I get it. Like Shatner. He did not care about that. He would take their pay raises. He was not – he did not care about like this is a team. He thought of it at the as a show about him. Yeah. And didn't care about anyone else. 
Um, and then to some extent, even if you hate working with him, what can you do? Because he's the center of the show. So if so, unless everybody leaves, which isn't going to happen, you're still yeah. going to have to you're going to have to deal with it somehow. Yeah. And he was always trying to cut people out of movies, too. Like this. It's not surprising that the movie that Leonard Nimoy both directed and had um, and had a lot of creative freedom gives all of the characters like for the most part their moments right Mm -hmm. takai and ahura are the only ones that don't really get anything cool to do i mean takai gets something cool to do but like he's barely it lasts eight seconds yeah i mean and you look at like we talked a a little bit about it like star trek 2 and star trek 3 and even the motion picture like no one has anything to do. Even in Star Trek Three, if anything, they everyone should have had more to do because there are like this Ocean's Eleven like breaking out, and it's all McCoy and Kirk. Um, and and Shatner did have amazing uh, power, even on this movie. After Nimoy and Meyer did their like draft, they still had to send it to Shatner, and then Shatner would say things he liked, things he wanted to cut out, and they would go and rewrite. So. I'm not sure of the whole the contract stuff and how all that stuff worked specifically, but like even at this point, Shatner had some power to change the story to his approval. And usually, for, if I remember correctly, usually that meant cutting out other people's parts to get more Shatner. All the actors are so capable and like when the movie relies too much on Shatner, you get to see – it's not even chinks in his armor. You get to see like just how limited his range is because like it, it's not even like a Keanu Reeves thing where like Keanu can hit it as long as it's within this range. And if it's outside that range, he's dead. It's like Shatner needs to hit this one archetype, this smug, semi-sexy, uh, like, uh, you know swashbuckling type and if it's not in that category or desperate old man now i guess he's added that to his arsenal um they uh it it doesn't work and like the fact that like he was theoretically holding these movies back because he was like well their talent should lay on the shelf while i get to really spread my wings is like really gross well, just wait till so when he just wait till next month, Peter, because um, spoiler alert, um, he made a movie where he gets to go tell God to fuck off. Uh, so. <laughs> it sounds great. Uh, um, wait, yeah. wasn't that basically the first movie, too? No, this. OK, well, we'll talk about it next month. I don't want to spo- okay. steal Zach, Zach Groton's uh, thunder. Um <laughs> Because he was the second he found out we were doing this, he's like Star Trek Five. <laughs> what is the so wait, Aaron? What is the le- your least favorite Star Trek movie of this series? Of of the original Kirk era original oh, series cast. A hundred percent. This one, uh, or sorry, the Final Frontier, the next one, Star Trek Five. Um, however, I would rank two Next Generation movies uh, below it. Okay. Uh, I mean, because, I don't get it, but okay. Yeah, I think Star Trek The Next Generation. So my rule of thumb is that, and I think I mentioned this, is that uh, Star Trek 
uh, the original series, the movies as a whole are better than the show, even though the show is really good. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation, the movie, the show is so much better than the movies as a whole. Um, there, uh, they, there's two movies that I have fondness for, um, and two terrible movies, but nothing approaches, uh, nothing approaches how good the show was when it was good, which was a lot of the time. And part of that is because they don't know how to make a movie of that show. Uh, one thing that was easier with the, the the original series, which I think we've seen in these movies, is that Shatner is the star, Spock is kind of, and McCoy are the number two and number three, and then you have these extra people. Uh, Next Generation truly was an ensemble show. So then when they went to go do the movies, uh, they almost were like, oh, let's just have these little arcs for these other people, and then... Picard doesn't really work as a movie star, so let's make him an action hero, which he wasn't. Let, let's make him Kirk, kind of. Um, and then they're like, well, we need a Spock, so let's make Data the other like star all of a sudden of the movies. And we'll talk about it more, but it doesn't work and definitely doesn't work. I, I just think the, next, uh, the original series transitioned a little more seamlessly because of the way the cast was there to round out its stars as opposed to being a more ensemble piece. I want to hear what, what your guys' scenes that you guys liked. So let's talk about the whales. Yeah, let's yes. talk about the whales. Did so, you know, hold on, sorry, as I, as I, as I steal this from you, um, that uh, Greenpeace and whale uh, co- uh, conservation companies fucking were pissed at this movie. What? Because Why? The way, they thought it was real whales. Nope, none of this is real whales. It's all models. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's cool. I mean, it's nice because it it's uh, them putting their money where their mouth is, right? Like, yeah, them being like them being like, hey, we really care about whales. It's it's like a, you can't have a Milo and Otis situation where you're like, we love these dogs and cats. No, there's just one dog, one cat. Hmm, dogs and cats. We needed a few. Uh <laughs> You need it like the, the, them using actual models and not risking hurting the animals or keeping them in captivity in some weird way while they shot the movie around them. Like all yeah, that you don't shit. you don't want to be like now we really have to conserve whales, guys, because we killed ten making this movie. <laughs> they looked pretty real. Oh yeah, I didn't know that till I didn't so, know that till. There's some shots today. that I think are real whales that nope. are just, but that was there's some shots that I think were them going out in the ocean and shooting whales, and then they actually uh, tried that. And it didn't work. They it couldn't find work. any, and there really? was no there was no pre existing footage in thirty five millimeter of humpback whales that they could use. That's amazing. Huh. All yeah. of that because those uh, those whales look real to me. I know completely. I know. I had especially no idea. when they're in the aquarium scene and yeah. they're just kind of set up against the water. I was like, they definitely just sent out a fucking diver to film this and then put the bar, you know, uh, green screened this window to insert the shot. So they did that, but they were still models. Those were not real whales. Huh. Cool. I, uh, I, I, that even shows off more of the practical facts, and that's something that's almost continuing from two and three, where I love when Star Trek has weird fucking aliens that are, uh, that are perfectly captured in practical effects, and the whales in this movie look 
real fucking good as a practical effect. Like, it looks like they took the same sort of care they would for an alien creature, and they were like, well, no, a whale is... These, these whales are incredibly beautiful and, and unique creatures. We should try and capture them in all their glory. And they did great. Yeah. What do you guys think about the the general just uh, save the whales message and um, what they were going for in general? Not a fan. Whales are dicks. <laughs> I just watched the first half of uh, Blackfish. Um, seems like that whale was kind of an asshole. He was killing a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So after that, I've only seen Orca the Killer Whale, and it seems like whales are kind of assholes. So I liked that that was their grounding to get yes. to a story on Earth. That they they found something that was like specific enough to you know the the Earth ecosystem that they were able to use that as the jumping off point for having a more environmental story without without directly trying to make it that um and like making a fern gully on some weird planet <laughs> yeah exactly um it felt it felt very grounded in in the return to earth kind of thing and uh yeah and i just the, it's the whales are just cool yeah, they are. And I I don't know about you guys, but like I remember being in elementary school, which I guess was still a few years after this movie came out. But, you know, uh, this is back when like uh, environmentalism was not controversial. <laughs> like uh, like the idea of saving the planet, saving the whales, saving the oceans. I still remember watching um, Ted Danson narrated uh, videos in elementary school talking about how important the oceans were to save and how scary it was that whales were being hunted to extinction. So it 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 it, it definitely felt like a big issue at the time, even from my um, very young kid perspective. And so even looking back, it's like, oh, this is like if they made a Star Trek movie about global warming right now. And it was like not subtly about global warming, but like hammering it home. And there, it just felt like that was the biggest environmental issue or one of the biggest of the day. And I like that they not only were able to hang their hat on that, but uh, in my research – you may notice there is no controversy around it. Yeah. It, like no one was it like, never kill those fucking whales. It never feels super politicized. Yeah. Which is, I guess, why it, feel, it feels a little bit more subtle to me than probably it is in reality, just because there isn't a lot of grandstanding about it. It just sort of, it just sort of expected that, like, yes, we should save these whales. That seems yeah. like a good thing to do. And it's not, it's not like a partisan kind of thing, like the way that it would be if they made that movie now. Which is ridiculous that that it would be that, but we live in ridiculous is, times. Yeah, that, that is one hundred percent true. And I just like that they also have this scientist lady character as you know she's just so into these whales that like you know she seems to like Kirk also, but really it's these whales, and like that's the th- that's her motivation for everything she does in the movie. You know, one thing that's so interesting too is that. Kirk on the show, like he's kind of known as the the old joke that he just wanted to fuck all the aliens, right? Because on the TV show, he constantly had love interests for episodes. This is really the only movie where he even has a quasi love interest. Um, and even then, it's almost like platonic, like res- respecting each other. Um, yeah, it never really goes that far. They don't even kiss at the end. Like when she goes, like he, she kisses his cheek. 
and that's like a hey yeah i'll see you out there but it, yeah, it's it's just it's just so funny because that was such a big part of the show, and it's such a big part of Shatner's reputation from the show that this is like the closest you get in movie form. Yeah, I forget the exact line, but I love when they first get in her car, and she says something <laughs> like, "You know, like I got a tire iron in here. I'll you know hit you if you try anything." Yeah. I like that she yeah, just no, she, she just establishes from the get go like do not fuck with me I am here for the whales I am not here for you are you going to help me with the whales then fine we can talk I yeah, love that she, I love the way she grabs onto Kirk too to like gotcha yeah like I'm coming fuck you these are my whales yeah yeah that's a that's yeah. a great moment yeah it makes her a far more interesting character because I feel like movies often as soon as they establish someone as the love interest they're just like oh done with care they like wipe their hands they're like ah done with characterizing that woman now we can just uh move on to the guy <laughs> like yeah the shitty it, the, version yeah. of this is like ooh, who's this mystery man yeah instead she's just like you're a weirdo but like i want to know what the hell you're doing with my whales like she suspects he's like a government spy or she's he's from some sort of other organization and then she's like well are you an alien she's like just like rolling out all these ideas to and she basically figures out that he's something not human uh, without him telling her, even though it's like a crazy idea. I mean, Spock makes it pretty obvious. (laughs) Spock is not good at pretending to be human. It does have that great line, though, too, where he's like, she's like, oh, so you're from outer space. He's like, no, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a lot. Uh, (laughs) And I like how she just adjusts to being out in space with them. And she's like, oh, yeah, I don't have anything for me back on Earth. Like, it was just about the whales. I don't have anybody in my life that I care about. This will be fine. I love that she's wearing future clothes because yeah. that implies like the first thing she's like fucking hook me up. Yeah, she got the I'm outfit. The she's now. like totally yeah. into it. She's she's yeah. very fun. She has a yeah. She gets to go be the captain of a uh, of a new ship, right? <laughs> yeah. She already has a like. She's like, not only do I have a job, I'm the captain because no one else knows about fucking whales. Yeah, she acclimates so incredibly well. She's like the most badass character you can possibly imagine, which kind of. You know, makes up for the fact that Uhura has like nothing to do. So at least there's at least there's a woman that has something to do in this movie. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't think of jobs for two of them. No, that would be too much. Um, Uhura does have some really good stuff in Star Trek Six, which is like maybe a too little too late, but at least she gets some really good moments. Oh, that's nice. I'm hoping that they find some space for Uhura because like I keep waiting for the moment where it's just going to all click into place and I'm going to be like, oh yeah, like they, they made they made room for her finally. Like they did all these guys finally made room for her and it just hasn't really happened yet. I mean, she has a really good scene in Star Trek 3 where she um, takes down the transporter room people. But as we talked about in that episode, it's like she has, I think, actually the best heist scene. But then they leave her behind. Uh, she's the only one that gets left behind. She's like, I'm going to go talk to Sarek. Uh, and everyone else goes to rescue Spock. So, like, she's got the best scene. And then they're like, all right, well, you did your thing now. Go not be with us. <laughs> Those jerks. That, that Sarek thing, is they're like, mm, we only need one Vulcan. All right. Yeah, it's not like we have a way to send messages across space. You got to <laughs> go fly there. Um, speaking of which, Peter, um, 
I also really like that the end of this movie is a final resolution on the the arc between Spock and his father that at this point was started 20 years before on one episode of Star Trek, the Journey to Babel episode we watched. I mean, I guess Spock had to die to get there, though. Well, true, <laughs> but sad. like, but Journey to Babel is all about like, I wanted you to be a Vulcan. I didn't want you to join Starfleet. And at the end of that episode, they don't have really any sort of like, it's good you did this. But like now, 19 years later, after he dies and he comes back and they have that great little moment in the hallway where he's like, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah. Well, how, how did that pl- how did that moment play for you, Carrie? I, you know, I, I, I didn't have the full context for it, but I like considering how much of the movie is about Spock kind of refinding his ground and coming back to himself i it felt to me just like an acceptance of him as who he is cuz so yeah, much I guess so th- much of the movie is him trying to trying to come to terms with like balancing the various parts of himself and trying to like re remember how to interact with the world and it just felt like kind of a coda to all of that to me yeah that makes sense i suppose it's, there's not like he says, I, I, um, I'm sorry I said that you shouldn't have joined Starfleet. I'm proud. I, I suppose that doesn't need like a lot of explaining like, ooh, is yeah. there a backstory? But it's, uh, it is nice that there, there actually was like a whole episode about that. Yeah. Um, it's, it is, it is really nice the way for a, especially Star Trek, the original series, which had almost no continuity from episode to episode. You know, it was just one-off adventures with the same cast and crew. I really like the way the movies pulled all of these like lingering, not even lingering threads, but like all these little things that started on the show to kind of give resolutions or follow up to. I, I, you know, that's that's such a that seems like a no brainer thing to do. But Star Trek, the, ne- uh, the next generation movies, especially after the first two, like forgot that that's kind of an important part of why people are seeing these people on the big screen It's not just for new adventures. But, you know, there is some there is some some wrap ups that you can give to kind of uh, longtime fans of the characters. Closure is nice. Yeah. I also liked that scene because it kind of mirrors it. If it, it, it felt to me like it mirrors the scene at the start of the towards the start of the film with his mother. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, she's trying She's trying to get some sense of where he's at with any sort of emotional intelligence and showing just how far he has to go. And so the interaction they have with his father at the end felt like, you know, okay, he's there's some progress that's being acknowledged and there's some acceptance from his family that's being acknowledged. Yeah, and uh, the person who plays her mo- his mom she was on that episode in 1967 as well, and this is actually her last film role. Oh wow! Before she before she died at uh, 96. That's a that's a good age. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I don't I don't yeah. feel bad about that yeah. one. <laughs> well done, Jane Wyatt. That's who it was. Who I recognize from a Back to the Future joke. <laughs> okay. Like where where yeah, it was like I, fo- I suppose Jane Wyatt is the first lady or something. Oh yeah yeah. Uh, I like the idea that the end of the movie is like. <laughs> there's like a 
court scene. And I feel like with all the Star Wars, uh, Star Trek shows, they could have done a Star Trek night court, basically. Mm-hmm. Just like been all about space crime. Uh, and the Klingon ambassador is the John Larroquette character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like they could have they could have made something work with people coming in and being like, "This man stole five hundred Kryptons from my orbiter lunar vessel." And we don't use like, money. like i want i want or like at least a judge judy for star trek like i want to i want a sassy judge to come in and be and lay down the law but she's a a tentacle beast with 500 arms so you are gonna like star trek (laughs) six <laughs> um, but the end of the, the fact the end of the movie is like a, a really uh, abbreviated court case is like kind of interesting because Kirk gets knocked down to captain, and the fact that he just gets handed the Enterprise at the end it just feels like it's like the movie being like, oh you, it doesn't matter the, what he you saved did. The, the universe. Um, we I don't know if you remember this, Peter, but when we did our first episode of the motion picture, we talked about how much they remake that concept of like the V'ger probe that it no one can communicate with it's destroying stuff and we joked that like yeah they remade it three movies later uh and yeah they they absolutely did to that that ship is cigar shaped which is like a common description of uh what ufos look like they actually took the design from arthur c Clarke's book uh i want to say rendezvous with uh rama yeah i think so yeah, that's uh, one of my dad's favorite books. He loves he loves those, those the books in that series at least. Uh, uh, I really like their detective work too. Like I like that. There's that moment where no one can figure out what the sounds are, and uh, I think it's Spock who's like, "Hey, do me a favor. What would this sound like underwater?" Mm-hmm. And like that's such a great little moment. Um, and I, I like the idea that uh, they were such on good terms with the humpback whales that. They're like, man, we have not heard from them. Let's. <laughs> What's up with that? I like that the doctor has a bumper sticker that says "I heart whales." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's into it. Sort of an understatement, even like it's. Like, it'd be like if Daniel Plainview pulled up in his Model T and he had an "I heart oil" bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you know that in the original cut, uh, against Nimoy's wishes? Uh, the the probe noises was going to be subtitled with "Where are you? Why can't I find you?" And, <laughs> That's terrible. And, and Nimoy was like, "No." And they did a test screening, and uh, and uh, then finally the producers or whoever was like, "Oh yeah, this is terrible. Yeah, why did you do this?" <laughs> um, but I do like like I remember seeing it as a kid, and it's just like, "What the fuck is this?" And it starts destroying shit, and they don't really give an explanation. It's not till like thirty minutes in that the Enterprise is like, "Oh, wait, I think we figured this out." Um, so it gives a lot of time to just this weird thing that even a Star Trek fan has never seen before. Like, you, I don't know what this is. This wasn't a reference to a previous episode. And it's just, you know, taking things down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess if we're moving to final thoughts, um, I, I, I really like this movie, uh, especially as it, it feels like a nerd's fan service, but without being overly servile to nerds. It feels like they're like, well, 
what would happen if which is like always kind of a fun territory it almost feels like fan service that actually gets the characters or a fan fiction that gets the characters like what would happen if they were just dumped on earth the fact that they know they can go back to the past in the show after tomorrow is yesterday they can just they can just figure it out they can they could just loop around the sun and and you know there's some risk but they can do it but the fact that they're just like, hey, we've done it before is very charming uh, because usually these shows have to – these movies, these shows, these books have to figure out how to be like, oh, the time turner in Harry Potter doesn't work anymore because, uh, you know, it just do- – it doesn't work like that anymore because of, of magic-y stuff. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 the reason why. But it, and they do this in uh, – all sorts of time travel stuff where they're just like, well, no, it doesn't work that way because that would be too convenient to fix all of the plot's problems. Uh, and I really like that the movie is like, no, we could we could do this. We could we could fix the movie with time travel. No one, no other crew has done this. We're not reading this from a textbook. We have literally done this before. It starts so dark and then it gets so fun. Like it literally ends with a pool party with the whales. Everyone's bouncing around in the water below the Golden Gate Bridge, just swimming around, splashing each other. That's so funny. There's fun. a lifeguard there. Uh, he would tell them to stop splashing. But other than that, you know, great time. Um, and Kirk, like, meanly bullies and pulls Spock down like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and Spock's like, I find it illogical. You're trying to drown me. <laughs> I like it because you can tell that uh, Leonard Nimoy is trying hard not to break. Uh, it's so clear that it's a take where, like, Shatner really was, like, trying to fuck with Nimoy, and they left it in as part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty funny, and I really love the um, – <laughs> I love the moment when they're like, how will I find you between the Doctor and Kirk? And, and it, it kind of implies that in this utopian perfect future uh, where no one starves and there's no money. Money and everyone has what they need more or less um that there's no social media and that's really <laughs> what i i dream of for the future so that's how i want to stop talking about star trek 4 <laughs> <laughs> carrie what are your final thoughts i i just think it's such a delight um i think that more franchises need these kind of standalone movies. And I think that it's just such a tender look at the relationships and the friendships between these characters. Um, I think that all of the Kirk and Spock stuff is just really endearing and lovely. And I, I, I just think that it's a fun watch. And it made me, seeing it last year made me more interested in starting to go deeper into Trek than I have before. Because as I mentioned, it's something that's always been in my life, but always a bit casually as well. And so this feels like the gateway into more things. So I'm, I'm grateful for it for that. Yeah, I, and I really hope you do, uh, not just because you get to listen to us two bozos as a guide through them, but even, even when we're done... Um, Uh, Even when we're done doing the movies, I think we have some ideas to kind of keep this going as much as we're interested in, Uh, just because there is so much Trek and there's so much that uh, Peter hasn't seen. So uh, we'd love to have you back on and um, maybe even catch up on uh, how you feel about Star Trek IV and its place in the trilogy or just if you end up catching up with stuff. uh, Yeah, just giving us an update on uh, if if you've dug in any deeper uh, into into track absolutely uh for my, my final thoughts uh 
I, I think I've kind of <laughs> th- vomited them all over the episode. Uh, I just love this movie in a in a way that uh, I don't even know the right word to describe it because we all have those movies that we've just loved for such a long period of time that like looking at it or thinking about it or seeing the case gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling and a movie that we can watch at any point. Um, and that's one of that's this is one of those movies. It has been it was my intro into the Star Trek movies um, before I think I saw Next Generation, definitely before I uh, saw probably most episodes of Star Trek. And I just I just loved it. And the parts I didn't get like was I, I still remember the part where he's like he's going to get the glasses again. And I didn't understand how was he going to get the glasses again. Uh, because I didn't know that was from a scene in Star Trek 2 and just feeling like I loved it and the stuff I didn't understand I wanted to know more of. And that really led to eventually my kind of obsession with Star Trek. So I love this movie in an unreasonable fashion um, that only only like a only like a kid who found the thing that they loved for so much of their life could. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you guys were able to join us for this one, but you, Peter, <laughs> by you guys, I mean, uh, the co-host who's on every episode and also Carrie, uh, who has <laughs> been on, uh, 20% of the episodes. Um, but yeah, I, I really love this movie. Um, and it, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there's still one more original series movie that I have a ridiculous amount of fondness one, the one I saw in theaters uh, next week is going to be, I haven't seen Star Trek five um, for a long time. Uh, probably not since, I don't know, maybe high school or college whenever they came out on DVD. So interested to revisit that Zach, uh, Groton will be our guest. Uh, I think a member of the Five Timers Club over on We Love to Watch. Carrie, what do you have to promote? Our friends over at the Solute. Um, so we're recording this in March, which is Women's History Month. And our friends over at the Solute are doing a series about the women's canon. Basically movies that women... Uh, feel an affection for that are not normally brought up in serious film discussion. Um, so I have a couple pieces that I'm writing for that. One came out today about um, my rewatch, my recent rewatch of Anne of Green Gables, which was the the th- probably one of the most influential films that I watched when I was a kid that I had not watched in maybe 20 years. Um, until about a couple weeks ago. And then um, I have a couple more that'll be out in the next couple of weeks that will all be out by the time this is out. Um, but there's a whole bunch so they of... they are all linked to in the show notes. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of great pieces uh, that will be coming out um, by a bunch of different uh, female writers, um, a lot of whom are uh, dissolvers. And yeah, you should definitely go check it out and see... The, the media that has uh, been important to a lot of women that they don't really feel like they get much of an opportunity to talk about. Awesome. Yeah, I've uh, I read a couple of those. I'm excited to check out your Anne of Green Gables one. Uh, I'll tell you my funny Anna Green Gable story when we're off mic here. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. But, uh, but Peter, so before we go into the next one, after Star Trek 3, you were like, uh, actually, let's let's actually go back. So after Star Trek, the motion picture, after Star Trek two and after Star Trek three, you sent me messages 
trying to figure out how quickly we could record the next one because you were just so amped about the series. So Star Trek four, even though you know you're going into one of the lesser ones, what are you feeling? I'm feeling still excited about this. I uh, I'm having a lot of fun with the series. I feel like I'm ready for for the adventures that lie ahead, especially knowing that I get some fucking sick pea stew coming up. Uh, <laughs> that's Patrick Stewart <laughs> working on his nickname right now. Uh, definitely does not sound like a massive crockpot full of urine. <laughs> um, but, well, don't uh, worry, you you still get the, you get you get a little uh, chaser because you get pea stew and W shat. Yeah, for the first instead one. that's like taking the chaser first, <laughs> then the shot after. <laughs> um, but uh, one final note on this movie, I just uh, I just find it hard to believe that uh, De- DeForest Kelly is such a conservation fan <laughs> <laughs> because he's uh... yeah, because he's old. And old yeah. people, as we've learned in our real lives, don't care about the future of the planet. Anyway, uh, Peter, get ready to end Trek for today. But we'll be back next month with Star Trek V with Zach Groton and then uh, wrapping up the original series movies, Star Trek VI, with returning guest Bruce Ross, who started this with us uh, a few months ago. Uh, We'll be joining us again, and uh, we already have the rest of the movies booked, so we're very excited uh, to keep going. So, But for now, uh, uh, end transmission. I don't think they say that on Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>